Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. So Mary, she's both surprised by Gabriel's sudden appearance and she's troubled by the message that he's bringing to her. It was troubling to her in that it it mixed with fear of encountering an angelic being She didn't quite yet understand what his message had to do with her and why she was being singled out by God like this. Some suggest that it reveals Mary's humility, which I don't disagree that she was a humble woman. But I simply think it's the natural reaction of a woman who is having a supernatural encounter like this, especially after nothing like this has been happening for nearly 400 years. Just imagine if if suddenly an angel appeared in your living room and it was clear that it was an angel and he starts delivering a message to you from God. I'd argue it would blow you away and it would probably cause a little bit of unsettledness in you. The supernatural is hard to fathom to begin with, but especially when it's happening to you. And that's what's taking place here for Mary. We'll look at verse 30. It says, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke now records the message that Gabriel gives to Mary. Number one, after calming her fears, we saw him do that as well with with, uh, Zacharias. And as we've talked about before, you know, one of the things you know when an angel comes from the Lord, nine times out of ten, unless he's there in some kind of a judgment role, which he's not coming to you as a believer in, but when he comes to a believer, he always utters those words, don't fear, have nothing to fear. Jesus says that too, oftentimes, "Don't, don't fear, no need to fear. I'm here, I've got this, God is in control. But after calming her fears, don't be afraid, Mary. I'm here because God favors you. He goes on to tell her that she will supernaturally conceive a child who she is to name Jesus. Jesus is the Aramaic equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. Both are a compound of the Hebrew word that would be spelled out Y-H-W-H in our alphabet. We would say it as Yahweh, and, and, or it can mean salvation. Salvation is literally what it means. So literally translated, it would mean Yahweh saves, or Jehovah is salvation. That's what Jesus' name means. Second, he also tells her that this child will be great. Jesus' first coming never rose to greatness as the world considers great. He was spit upon. He was mocked. And, and in reality, he was really followed ver- by very few people. The, the crowds would throng at times. Most of the time, they'd kind of ebb away when the miracles stopped or when he said something they didn't like. Not too untypical of churches in America today in some cases. But, you know, just ebbing away. He just wasn't followed by a huge crew. He was 
spit upon. He was beaten. You know, in his first coming, he fulfilled the role that Isaiah prophesied that he would fulfill. Here's what Isaiah writes. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Now, I want you to think about this in terms of what this angel is telling Mary when he says, this child will be great. Think about this. If this is our measure of greatness. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, Because he poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with their transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There is no more lowly role that we, from a worldly perspective, could see than what's being described here. Beaten, an outcast, not desired by people, carrying the sins, the ugliness of sins upon him, and this makes him great. Yet despite this lowly role, no one has ever been born into this world who has affected the world as much as Jesus has. The world has been upended, if you will, because of him with generation upon generation of people committing their lives to and following him, even unto their own deaths in many cases, even not having physically seen him with their eyes as the generations have passed with time. No matter how much the world has tried to stomp out the name of Jesus and all he represents, they have been unable to do it. In fact, the more the world tries to eradicate any memory of him, the more his reputation grows in this world. Think about it. Even the most common curse word involves Jesus' name. It doesn't involve Buddha. It doesn't involve Muhammad. It doesn't involve anybody's name except Jesus'. And one day... 
he will fully meet and even exceed every human standard of greatness as he returns to this earth and assumes a position of authority that no earthly king or leader has ever achieved and leading in a way that mankind has never seen or experienced before. I can't wait for that day to come. Just as he's described in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hallelujah. Contrast that with Isaiah's depiction. Contrast that with how the world would see a king today. It exceeds it in this day. And yet in his first coming, he didn't meet mankind's expectations. It's one of the reasons his own people rejected him. Because this wasn't a, a lowly suffering servant. This wasn't the kind of king they were looking for. This isn't greatness. But in God's kingdom, it was as great as it could get. Because it was through Jesus' humility as he came to this earth and he humbled himself as a man, suffering for us upon that cross, taking upon himself the ugly sin of all mankind, taking upon himself, he did the greatest act that could have ever been done. That's what makes him great. And yes, one day he will exceed, not just meet, exceed the worldly standards of greatness when he comes again. Truly, the angel was correct. This child will be great. Third, he also tells her that he will be called the son of the highest. In other words, even though Jesus would be the biological son of Mary, he would also be and be known as the son of God who supernaturally conceived him in her womb. Number four, he tells her that God would one day give him the throne of his father, David. This is another way of saying that he'll be the Messiah prophesied to David as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. Here's what it says, 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, here in this passage, there's a twofold thing being spoken of. He's speaking prophetically of Solomon who would follow David, build the temple and continue on. But yet, by the time he finishes that passage, he's speaking of a future lineage whereby David's throne would never end. You know, the nation of Israel ceased to exist for 2,000 years. Judah got dispersed throughout the earth. And now Israel's back in the land, but we still don't see where's the line of Judah? Where is it? Oh, it's there. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. 
He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one whom this prophecy is being made of that will be the fulfillment of David's lineage. He will one day receive completely the throne of his father David on this physical earth and into eternity. And Mary is being told that Jesus would be the fulfillment of God's promise and as such, he would have the rightful authority to rule over Israel and ultimately the world that he created and that his kingdom, there would be no end. And at this point, Mary must have really been blown away if you think about all this. It had to be hard for her to comprehend it all because as a devout Jew who knew the scriptures and the prophecies contained in them, she would have understood the powerful implications uh, about all of what was being said to her here. The question is, do you understand all of the implications that concern Jesus Christ and his role in this world presently and his role in the future and what he came to do for you? I pray that you do. Look at verse 34. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Now that's a reasonable question, all things considered. But keep in mind, what had to also be going through Mary's mind was the fact that if all of this was true and it was going to happen to her as the angel was saying it would, she could be stoned to death under the law for having a child out of wedlock like this. Even if she believed it was possible, what about everybody else? What are they going to believe? What would they believe and how would they react? You know that she had to be thinking about that. It's important for all of us to realize The things God wants to work in our lives oftentimes comes with lots of complications, lots of complicators. But faith, by its very nature, implies that no matter what those complicators might be, we need to simply believe and trust by faith that God will be working them out as we yield ourselves to his will and to his plan, letting him bring about what it is that he wants to bring about in our lives while trusting that he'll take care of all of the things that to us seem complicated. Faith is seeing things from God's perspective and not from our own constrained human perspective and simply trusting that he will work out the details accordingly. I can tell you from my own life, I know that to be true. I know that despite my agonizing over details, and I have a tendency to do that quite a lot, but my agonizing over details, the one thing I have learned over the years is that God is faithful to work them out when he's doing it. All I need to know is that's what he's doing. All I need to know is that's what he's asking me to do. And that's all you need to know as well. And then to walk by faith that, you know what? Let's not focus on all of the what ifs and how's this going to work out? I mean, Mary's fair in the question. How can this be? I've never had relations with a man. How can this be? And by the way, for those who would argue that Mary really wasn't a virgin, that verse puts it to death right there. Puts it all to rest. I never knew a man. I haven't had relations with a man. So how can this be? It's a fair question, but the question becomes not what's the fair question, what's the response to the fair question? Well, look on. Verse 35, and the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. The angel really doesn't answer her question. He doesn't really answer a question. He just goes on telling her what's going to happen. But with this statement, Mary, being the devout Jew that she was, would have been making the connection to the Old Testament prophecy given by Isaiah. 
Because in Isaiah 7, 14, I actually said that one wrong earlier. This is the verse. It's Isaiah 7, 14, not Isaiah 7, 4. But Isaiah 7, 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. She would have known that verse. And the connection would have been made that this is an ordinary child. This thing even got more complicated. This is going to truly be the Messiah. This is it. And by the way, please note the implication of the Holy Spirit coming upon her is not in any way referring to any kind of supernatural sexual experience between God and Mary. And yes, there are people who suggest that kind of perverse idea. There are. But it's simply referring to a description of how through the power of God, life would supernaturally be sparked within Mary. In the same way God sparked life in this created world, brought man into existence by his very word. What does it tell us in Genesis 1, which I believe literally? Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Why was the Spirit hovering? Because the Spirit was about to, to bring things into existence that God would begin to speak it. By the way, we're also told in Colossians that Jesus was there and that all things were created through him. But it was through the spoken word of God, a simple spoken word of God that brought life into existence in the same way through a spoken word. Yep, Jesus isn't going to suddenly appear in human form as, as Adam did, but he's going to spark life within Mary for her to carry this child. There's a parallel relationship between this event and, and that we're seeing here that the angel's describing to Mary and the event at creation. Look at verse 36. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her, her who is called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. I think he's answering Mary's question, how can these things be? Here he's answering it directly. And it's as almost he's saying to her, need, need even more proof, Mary? Need even more proof than just what I gave you here from the Old Testament prophecies of, of the promise that God made to do this? Do you want more proof, Mary? Then look at what I've done with your cousin Elizabeth. Unlike you, she is past childbearing years and was barren, and yet she has also conceived a child through my creative power at work in her. So if you're wondering how this can possibly be, just remember, with God, nothing is impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. More literally, for with God, nothing will be impossible can be translated for no word of God shall be powerless. No word of God shall be powerless. In other words, God is more than capable of bringing to pass whatever it is he declares he's going to bring to pass. What terrific words for us all to remember. What terrific words for us to remember. What God says he's going to do. He's more than capable of doing it. Why would we question him? Why would we doubt him? Yet even though we say we believe God, many times we do doubt. Many times we do question his power. We limit him and we limit what he can and wants to do in our lives and in our world through our own human faithlessness and doubt. God is not like us. He's not like you and me. He's able to do things that, that you and I as created human beings are unable to do. But with God, it's possible. 
And all he asked of us is that we would trust him, that we would not doubt him, but simply believe him when he tells us that he's able to perform that which he declares to us. He wants us to be like Abraham. Remember this passage? We looked at it a number of weeks ago, but Romans 4, verses 18 through 22. Romans 4, verse 18, who contrary to hope and hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. He didn't think about how old he was. Already dead, right? Since he, it says he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's the kind of faith that God asks us. I've said it. Believe me. Take me at my word. Believe because don't don't try to figure out how I can do it, because all you're going to do is apply your, your human limited mind to 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 things as you see it in this world, to the complicators that would be involved. Understand that I'm capable. Nothing's impossible with me. We're also told about Abraham going on in verse 17 of Romans 11, or Hebrews 11, rather. Hebrews 11 in verse 17, the writer of Hebrews says this, By faith, speaking of Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he, who had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. This was in response. It's talking about when God told Abraham after he finally had that child that he'd been promised, which after a while he was starting to wonder where it would come from. But the child is born. Isaac's born. And then God turns around and says, now I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to take him up the mountain. I want you to sacrifice him. Abraham responds. He responds. He responds because he knew that even if that happened, God was able to raise him from the dead because he'd promised. He'd made a promise that this would be the lineage. Folks, God declares to Mary and he declares to us that with him, nothing will be impossible. The question is, will we take him at his word and start believing him? Does Mary believe him? Well, look at her response as we conclude today. Look at verse 38. Then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. God said it. Mary accepted it. God said it. Mary accepted it. No But what about, and but what if, and but, 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 none of that. No other questions, no other qualifiers. Mary simply chooses, as you and I should choose, to take God at his word and to leave him to work out all of the details in his timing and in his way, no matter how impossible, no matter how complex, no matter how troublesome all those details might seem to be. God said it, Mary made the choice, and make no mistake, it was a choice that she was making to believe God. She believed that what God said was true, and she trusted that he would bring to pass the very things that she was being told he was going to do. This is the kind of faith that God desires from all of us as it's it's a real working out of the definition of what faith truly is, just as the Bible declares it to be. But wait a minute, some Christians will say in my Bible, Hebrews 11.1, which talks about faith, says faith is about hope. Because it says now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And and, and they would say, well, I, I hope that God will do the things that he says he'll do. So isn't that all it's required is that I hope he'll do it? Isn't that the key? 
Yeah, hope is the key, but not in the sense that you're applying it. Folks, that verse is not talking about hope in the sense that we somehow hope God will do something that he says he will do, but it's talking about the hope we have that he is capable of doing what it is that he says he'll do and then choosing to believe and trust that he is not only capable, that he will do it. We have hope in the promises made to us. We have hope that he's going to accomplish. What he's promised to us has given us hope. We're not hoping he can do it. We have hope in the fact that we know he will do it. As one author paraphrases Hebrews 11.1, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. This, my friends, is true faith. This is is faith that the Bible says pleases God. This is the faith that Mary had when told by Gabriel that God would supernaturally conceive this child, the promise in her. And it is the faith that he asks of us as he works in our lives as well. Will we have the faith to simply say, behold, the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. I pray that you and I can and do say this, that this would be our heart as well, that we would take God at his word and by faith that we would believe him, though our human minds might give us a lot of arguments why it's not possible and all of the buts will flow through our heads, that in the end we would simply be the kind of people who would look and say, behold the servant of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word, Lord, because I believe your word, I believe with you all things are possible. May that be the truth for your life as well. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.